0: Well, all right. Good morning, everybody. Everybody good this morning? There we go. Y'all can see me, but I can't see you. Maybe There we go. All right, we're good. We're in business this morning. Uh, yeah, good job, guys. So um, this morning, I just want to welcome you to Connection Church. Savannah, if this is your first time here, my name is Michael Page. I'm the lead pastor here at Connection Church. Savannah, we're excited that you're here. Um, if you were not here last week, you missed out on a big week, right? A couple of us know, yeah. So last week was our Above and Beyond Sunday where we took Above and Beyond offering. Uh, I was so encouraged to watch our church come together around the mission and vision that God has given our church. It was awesome to see people uh, committing to joining arms and um, and to carry out the mission that God has given us as a local church. And So now, now it's time to get to work, right? Now it's time to get busy building. Remember we talked about the first week of Above and Beyond. It's picking up the shovel, getting out of a seat, picking up a shovel and getting to work. Because we, we believe the heart and soul of the church is to, to see God's name made famous around the world. And we have work to do if we're calling ourselves Christians, right? So our goal, you want to know what we raised? Okay. So, our goal was uh, forty nine thousand one hundred dollars so that we could elevate our generosity and make an impact in our community and globally around the world to see churches planted to see people and our local outreaches um, you know uh, be be supported by what we're trying to do as a church and because of your generosity we're going to be able to do that. Uh, pastors in Liberia are going to be supported for the, at least this year for sure. Uh, thrive um, Women's Health are going, are going to be supported for this year. Uh, Hope Academy is going to see um, refugees reach for the gospel because of some of the things that you did last week in giving above and beyond what you normally do, but so that we can go beyond where we normally go. And so our goal was forty-nine thousand one hundred dollars, and we raised sixty thousand one hundred twenty-four dollars. So that is a that is a beautiful thing. And I was telling our I was telling our connectors this past week that or th- this morning actually that. Uh, It's very uncommon for a church of 150 to raise that much money in one Sunday. God doing something through your heart tells me that God wants to do something special in this house. And what we have to do is we have to give our hearts and give our lives to see that carried out. If you look through the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, what you're going to see is God calling to himself a people who are bought in heart and soul with his mission. And that's what we want to be as a church. We don't want to be a bunch of people who come and attend a service whenever it's convenient. We want to be a people who are bought into the body of Christ to see His mission made greater on the world. And that's the heart that we have today. And so I want to pray for us this morning. I want to pray and uh, to, to give thanks for this offering, um, for your generosity, for what God did through you, and what God did through this church. And I also want to just pray. For the service, So if you will bow your heads with me this morning, God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you, God. There's nothing that we have done apart from you, God. You've done all this through us. And we're thankful, God, that you have worked in us and through us in this way. God, I pray that you would bless this offering that we took last week, that you would just use it. You would multiply its purposes, God. You would multiply its value, Father, among the people around the world that we're supporting, that we're loving, the places that we're giving, God, the places that we're going to, Father, physically this year. I pray that you would go with us. You would protect us. You would lead us. You would guide us. That we would be a that goes first, that says yes to your mission, Father. God, that our yes would be on the table completely and consistently, Father, that we would continuously say no to idols. We would continuously say no to self and selfishness, God. God, help us to be a church that is always missional, God, that is always about sending, that is always about being a part of your mission on this earth, Father, so that when one day we come into eternity, Father, we'll just step into the next phase of that mission and seeing it seeing it glorified, seeing it come to fruition, Father. We love you. We praise you. I pray that we will be a church that's always I'm just excited to be in your house, be amongst your people, to gather together as a body, Father. Grow this body, Father, deep and wide, Lord. We, we want to be deep in the Word and Scripture and doctrine, Father, but we also want to be wide with, with people to send and wide with people to, to, to invest in, Father. Where we want to connect people. We want to equip them and we want to send them, Father. So come and do your work in this house. Come and do your work through your people, God. We, we, we want to give you all the honor and glory and praise forever and ever, God. There's not one person in this church that, that deserves any glory except you, Jesus. We praise your name, God, because you're good. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so today we're starting a new series, as you know. It's called The Light of the World, um, and this is going to carry us through the Christmas season where we're going to celebrate the first coming of Jesus. And so if you're like me, Christmas is your favorite time of year. Anybody like Christmas? Anybody, I, listen, I put my Christmas lights up this year, like before Thanksgiving. Okay, like it was like it, my my wife looked at me like, "Are you crazy?" Like, what's? Because listen, I've always been the guy you don't you don't celebrate Christmas until you're done with Thanksgiving. I've been that guy. Well, a three-year-old little girl came up to me and says, "Dada, I want lights." I was like, "Let's put the lights up, baby." And so we put the lights up uh, before Thanksgiving and we put them on the house and we were the first ones in the neighborhood. Everybody was looking at us like we were crazy, but it was fine. I love Christmas because I I come from a, a, a fairly large family where we have a lot of memories and a lot of family and friends celebrating around the birth of Christ. But for many of us this morning, Christmas may bring up other feelings of frustration or dread or or suffering, maybe because you live in a very awkward family situation. I don't know. I've been there, done that. Uh, Maybe you've lost a loved one this year during the Christmas season last year, the year before, or many years past, and it hasn't been quite the same since. I lost a grandmother on Christmas Day a few years back, and it it hasn't quite been the same since um, her passing. But let me tell you this. If Christmas and the Advent season point to nothing else, it points to this. It points to this. While I may feel hopeless, while it may feel like hopelessness and depression are the only reasonable responses to your life and current situations right now, the season that we're going into today points to a Savior that says it's not over. You hear that? It points to a it points to a Savior, Jesus, who says. It's not over. The Advent season we celebrate hope and peace and joy and love and Christ and they're, they're, those things are are still very present. They're a present reality for people who look to Jesus for their hope. And one of the things that I, that I hope that you won't take for granted this season is the wonder and the mystery of Christmas. I know know sometimes we get kind of so um, run down by the mundaneness of life, the routines, the the Christmas shopping, the the work, the work schedules, trying to figure out where you're going for Christmas and Christmas Eve, what you're getting grandma and, and mom and dad, what you're doing for this person with the work parties, all these things that you have going on already. I pray that you would not take this season for granted. So this year has been one of the most memorable Christmas seasons for me. So far, because my, my children are three, um, and begin they're beginning to understand on the level of, of what Christmas is for the very first time. Last year, the year before, it's just, oh, we got presents. Let's do this thing, right? Now they're starting to understand the Advent, what Advent means. They're starting to, they're able to quote, you know, in the beginning was Jesus. Like the Advent guy tells, they're able to quote those verses to us and, and tell us they're, they're doing their little Christmas plays by themselves at home. And, and my, my daughter is telling my son, Braxton, in the beginning was Jesus. Just telling them that the beauty of that that season, having that that them come to life, it, it brings back memories for me. And, and I want to tell you, when you get outside of the Christmas season and you start explaining it to people, especially three-year-olds who don't know it, you realize how mysterious this whole story is. You start looking at Christmas a whole different way. God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who spoke life into existence, came as a baby. That's like, what a what? what? Back up. The, the baby that Mary was staring at in the manger was God, the God who made her. Y'all are like, wait a minute. What? We'll get there in a second. John 1. He had to be born in this way because there was no room in the local hotels at the time where they were going. But yet God was so in control of what was happening that he appointed an angel army to serenade his birth and a star to guide, guide wise men from thousands of miles away right to his front doorstep. God was sovereign. His whole life would be characterized by this same kind of paradox. You see throughout scripture, Jesus would get hungry, but yet he would feed 5000. Right? He would get thirsty, but yet he could walk on the water. You see that? He he was he, he was tired. He would get tired, but he could heal the sick and raise the dead. Do you see the paradox in the in the life of Christ and in this mystery of the story of our salvation. He was born the Son of Man, and the Son of God. And so he was born the Son of Man so that he could enter into our suffering, share in our pain, and bear our sin. He was born the Son of God because only God could save us. That's what I love. And so um, um, there's there's an African theologian. I'm not going to begin to try to pronounce his name. He said this 1,700 years ago. He said, he became what we are, sinful human flesh, that we might become who he is, the eternal Son of God. And our heart today is that we would see that means that Christmas is a profound message of hope for those whose lives are filled with despair. If you don't know despair this morning, it's coming. If you've never been through a, a deep despair or darkness in your life where or, or you're being tested or there's trials that are coming to produce works in your life, to produce faith in your life, those things are coming because we live in a sinful fallen world. We're set apart from those things, but we live in a world we're in it but not of it. To the one who's been feels a suffocating sense of despair this year because of their, it's their first Christmas without a loved one. This this brings hope. To the one who was devastated this year by a divorce, this brings hope. To the one who may have lost a job this year or is trying to figure out how to work out this year's Christmas financially, there's hope. To the one who is overwhelmed by regret, regret over a bad decision this year. They have they maybe they've made a bad decision. They're feeling the weight of the condemnation before God. There's hope. There's forgiveness. There's grace. Guys, the birth of Christ was a profound message for you and me, and I pray that as we start this series and going into Christmas Eve, all the way up to Christmas Eve, that we would understand this message that God came for us. He did not leave us as orphans. He did not leave us in our sins. He made a way for us, and that started way before Christmas, but it was realized at Christmas. It was realized whenever Jesus was born so many thousands of years ago. My heart today is that we would not miss that as we live day to day, as we live throughout our lives. The Son of Man came into the depths of poverty and pain for you because there was no other way to save you. He came for you. And I I tell you this, He would do it a thousand times over. So let's allow that same spirit that flooded the hearts of the shepherds when the angels appeared to them and the wise men, as they fell before him and worshipped him, giving them their gifts. Let that same spirit wash over us this season. And I wanted you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9 if you have your Bibles. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 9 and then we'll be in a lot of places in the book of John. So if you want to turn to John chapter 8, that'll be our main text. Isaiah 9 and John chapter 8. But this is the heart behind Isaiah chapter 9. We see the prophecy of the birth of the Prince of Peace. We see the prophecy of Jesus being foretold. We see a people living and walking in darkness and despair because the Israelites have, have sinned against God, have turned their back on God, have, have walked away from God, and we see um, them needing a Savior. We see them needing a perfect, spotless lamb to, to be sacrificed in their place, and that's what Jesus is going to be born to do. Jesus is going to be born to die. We, we heard last week Jamin speak about, about peace and how the cradle was always, always had a shadow of a cross on it. And that's our heart this morning is that we remember that Jesus was born of a virgin. He was born in, in Bethlehem. He was born in fulfilling all of these prophecies, but he was born to die for our sins. That's a beautiful thing. So let's read Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verse 2, and then we'll read verse 4 through 5. It says this. The people walking in darkness had seen a great light. That's Jesus. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Verse 4. Excuse me. We're going to read verse 6 and 7, I'm sorry. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on to forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Verse 4, verse 2 through 6 is talking about the Son that is coming. Verse 6 and 7 is pointing to Jesus' eternal reign on the throne of David. And so our heart today is that we would see that we serve an eternal God who was in the beginning with God at creation. He was the one the initiating creation. We see a God that loves us so much that he came in the form of a human to give his life for us. And what I love about this verse 2, it says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. What better imagery than becoming a Christian, being saved, going from death to life? Is there than for somebody to see a great light, which is Jesus, which is the salvation of your souls. So my question this morning is, what does it mean that Jesus came as light? That's the question we want to answer today. What does it mean that Jesus came as light? So turn over to John chapter 8, verse 12, and we're going to look at that today as our main text. John chapter 8, verse 12. So what does it mean that Jesus came as light? And so we're going to look into this, verse 12. We'll read through verse twenty and then we'll backtrack some to kind of give some context. It says this, it says Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. This morning I know there are Christians in this room, Christians in this world that feel like, "Hey, I've been saved, but it sure feels like I've been walking in darkness." You know what I mean? That, that's not the life of Christ that he promised and wants to give you. He wants to give you light. He wants to give you life abundantly. And I love this. These, this, is one of the, this is one of the seven I am statements in, in John where Jesus is saying, I am, blank. I am the light of the world. Anyone that follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're testifying about yourself, so your testimony is not valid. Think about that for a second. Jesus says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. But you don't know where I came from and you don't know where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. If I if, and if I do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Then they ask him, "Where is your Father?" Then Jesus said, you you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would also know my Father. He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple, but no one seized him because his his hour had not yet come. I love when Jesus does this because it shows that Jesus was not concerned about the snowflakes of the world. Right? Right? He said, listen, you don't know what you're talking about. You have, you, you, if you, you, basically, you don't know me or my father. Basically saying, you're not saved. You're not, you're not one of mine. You're, you're, you're on the outside looking in. Like if pastors say that today, they get fired, they get, they get canceled, whatever you want to call it. Jesus was not about that business. Jesus was about the truth. And my heart today is like, I'm looking at this, and I like to read the Bible with imagination. I'm a very visual person. I'm sitting here reading this, and guys, I'm not sure if you know this or not. This is a really awkward situation, Right? Like, for context, Jesus is sitting in the temple teaching, and there's a crowd, something crazy. Jesus had just been um, introduced to the, uh, the woman caught in adultery. We'll backtrack to her story in a second. But after he delivers her from her sin, and, and she, we see, I'm, we're see, we not sure, really sure what happens to her after that, but what happens, you see, Jesus sits down in the temple, and he begins to teach. And then there's this crowd that kind of comes up. And in his teaching, he says, I'm the light of the world. And someone from the crowd speaks up says, hey, you're lying about your testimony about yourself, and you're a liar. That's awkward. Okay, listen, Jesus says, what if if I am testifying about myself? I, I know where I came from. I know where I'm going, but you don't know where I came from, and you don't know where I'm going. So how would you know if I'm lying or not? And so Jesus is having this interaction with this God. So let me tell you this. Something else is going on here. Why are they so offended at, at Jesus' statement of, of, of him, him saying, I'm the light of the world? I, 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 I'm, listen, I might say some stuff in here that may offend some of you. I don't know. I might. And if I do, I apologize, and we can hug and slap high fives, and I'll tell you that I love you, that I didn't mean to offend you. But I may say something that offends you, and you're like, that guy's an idiot. He's a loser. Listen, I can handle that. I can handle you telling me that and you feeling that way about me. But it will be different if you stood up in here while we were preaching or whoever was preaching and said, hey, you're a liar, right? That would be weird. But it'd be, it, it, it's going to be really awkward when security kind of drags you out of here, right? And so, but, but that's what we see the Pharisees doing in this moment. We see the Pharisees saying, hey, Jesus, you're a liar. And then Jesus responds, I know where I came from and I know where I'm going, but you don't know either. And so the imagery of the light for a Hebrew, especially a Pharisee in this moment in the first century, would have had massive meaning. It would have massive meaning. I think we kind of lose that sometimes in our culture. But, and I think maybe the best way to unpack what Jesus is saying is to think back to Genesis chapter 1. What did Jesus say in the beginning? He says, Let there be light. Some of you are say, Jesus didn't say that. Yeah, He did. I'll show you in a second. The Bible says the state of the universe was dark. It was formless, and it was void. And then in Genesis 1, verse 3, God says, let there be light. It's dark, it's formless, and the God of the universe says, let there be light. And from that one sentence, those four words, what was formless was formed. What was darkness went running because the light pushes the darkness away. And what was void became full of life. Do you see the power of God's words here in this moment? I love it. This process is the way that God begins to interact with his creation, particularly with you and me, with the men and women that he calls to himself moving forward. So when Jesus says, hey, I'm the light of the world, he is making some claims here to the Pharisees that are unacceptable to the moral elites of his time, to the people who have built their worth on the ability to check boxes, for the people who think because of their behavior they're better than you right? And so what he's doing here in this moment, this is a massive threat to their existence because what Jesus just said in John chapter 8, verse 12, he said, I am God. That's what he said. And that's what the Pharisees heard. So when he says, you can say that my testimony is false, but I know where I've come from. What's he talking about? What's he talking about? Turn over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. He's talking about what he knows because he was there at the beginning John chapter 1 verse 1 it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God if you remember in scripture it says Jesus was the word made flesh so in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God he was with God in the beginning all things were created through him And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life. And that life was what? The light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. The word, this is the great Christmas verse for you guys. In verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He is the word made flesh. He's the word made flesh in the cradle. He's the word made flesh on the cross. And my heart today is that we would see. So when God says, Let there be light, who is the active force of creation? Jesus. Jesus is like, I know where I've come from and I know where I'm going. Think about if you're Jesus in this moment, you're the one who spoke, let there be light. And there was light. And then you come up to these Pharisees who think they got it together, and you're saying, okay, you're cute. Okay? Listen, but I was there in the beginning. I'm, I'm the word. I'm the one who voiced let there be light. I'm the one who gave life to you. I'm the one who was there and I know where I'm going. So what is he talking about now? So we've gone from the beginning. Or what about the end? Because God is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Look at Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen, but write it down. Verse 5, it says, night will be no more. This is the new kingdom, the new Jerusalem, the new earth, new heaven. Life will, night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. You want me to explain that to you? Well, I can't because I have no context to understand what it means to live without the sun. But all I know is I'm a literalist when I read the Bible. And for the Bible to tell me that I don't need the sun anymore because Jesus is going to be the light for me and his, his, his glory is going to illuminate all things for me, I, I'll, take it, I'll take the Bible at its word because I trust it and I believe it and I think it's infallible. Yeah, so as I read that, I'm like, man, there's a day coming where there's not gonna, I'm not going to need the sun because Jesus is going to outshine the sun. Jesus will illuminate everything in a way physically and spiritually that's better than the way the, the sun illuminates right now. That's mind-blowing. We won't need anything to reflect light because the, the light, the light, capital T, capital L, will be in our midst. Do you see that? That, that should bring some excitement to our bones this morning because there's something. We're going to live in his presence one day, and it's amazing. Jesus is he's, he's claiming here in John chapter 8, I alone illuminate the darkness. I alone take what is formless, and I form it. I alone feel the voids in your life that was left by darkness and sin. And so that's what I want to talk about today as we're looking at this, at John chapter 8. I want to look at what Jesus is saying. And I think there's three ways as you look in John 1, Revelation 22, um, Isaiah 9, John 8, all these places that we've visited so far today. There's three ways that we see Jesus, the light of Christ, the light of the world, three things that it does in our life. I look. And I see it illuminating the darkness. I see it taking what's formless and forming again. I see him uh, filling the voids that were left by darkness. So the first thing I see is the light of Christ illuminates the darkness. The light of Christ illuminates the darkness. So the Bible says that outside of a relationship with Jesus, if you don't know Christ this morning, that we're in what's called in the scriptures the domain of darkness. The domain of darkness. It sounds kind of scary, right? It is scary, okay? Okay. Um, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, Paul says, he has rescued us from what? The domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So when you become a Christian, when we become a Christian in this house or any place in the world where we say, hey, I'm trusting Christ to to save me from my sins, I'm I'm getting baptized to, to come into this faith, we're being transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of light. We like to say it here, we go from death to life. Because in the domain of darkness, you're dead in your sin. You're you're spiritually dead. When you come to Christ, God breathes new life into you and you come alive in Christ. It's no longer you who live, it's Christ who lives in you and through you. You see that? That's the beauty of new life in Christ. So if we're not a Christian in here this morning, the Bible says that you walk in spiritual darkness. You cannot see ultimate reality. You may be able to see some things and, and be able to discern some things, but you can't see what's ultimate. You can't see the ultimate purpose of your life. And this is the danger of a false religion, a false gospel, a prosperity gospel, a gospel that has some truths and some lies into kind of mixed in together. The, the problem with the, the world, the problem with our country when it comes to Christianity is we tell people, hey, raise your hand in service, say a prayer with a prayer counselor, and then you're saved. None of that's in the Bible. listen. What I want you to see is there's a lot of people today that the enemy has deceived in believing that they're children of light, but they're still wandering in darkness. And our heart today is that we would come alive to the true light of Christ, that we would come alive to know who He really is. Because Jesus says, "You will know them by their fruit." And if we don't have fruit in our life to point to a relationship with Jesus, then I'm going to tell you this morning: there's reason to question. Where your faith and where your life lies in the domain of darkness are in the light of Christ. This morning, my heart and my prayer is that every person in this room would know Christ in a really real way. Not know about Christ, but know Christ. Yes. Would know him. Would know about him. Would know his love for you. Would know his saving grace and mercies. Would know what he saved you from and just know, know a bunch of truths about him from the Bible. But would have a deep relationship with Jesus because he wants to change your life for his glory and your good. I love it if You can't tell. Whew. All right. So, if you're living in this, the spiritual darkness, you can't see ultimate reality. And this is called the domain of darkness. It's, it's, listen, it's trying to navigate in the dark. You can run and run and run, but you'll never really know if you're headed in the right direction. I want to tell you this I, me trying to walk to the bathroom three years ago when I didn't have three year olds, I could walk there in my sleep now. Is a lot different than now whenever I have three-year-olds and there's like Lego landmines and, and toy metal tractors laying places. You're kind of like, you're like, listen, this is a gamble. But I'm going to try to walk to the bathroom without turning on the light and waking up my wife, right? Because there might be a toy trader that might kill my foot, right? It might be there. So you don't know. So it's different. So I'm just hoping that I'm doing the right thing. So a lot of us who are living in darkness, that's how we do life. Well, that's what she or he is doing. So I'm going to kind of mimic them and live like them so I'll have this, this image of being a Christian. But I don't really know Christ. He hasn't changed my life. But because he's doing it and she's doing it, I'm going to do it. That's how you get burned out. That's how you get burned out because you have a lot of people who are trying to follow Christ without Christ. i said this in a hundred times in this room that you can't follow Christ without following Christ. Does that make sense? You can't follow Christ without Jesus. Guys, this is our spiritual state outside of Christ. And when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's talking about, he's illuminate. He's talking about illumination. For those of you who know Christ in here this morning personally, you know that feeling of when you came to Christ. You remember that wow, the colors are brighter. I can see things clearer. I know things that I shouldn't know. I know it's like poof, the Holy Spirit's working in you. You're moving You're moving in a new direction in life. You've gone from death to life. You've repented. There, that metanoia is working itself out in your life. Yeah. And I love this. It. It's talking about illumination. C.S. Lewis probably said it best. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Uh-huh. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I can see the sun, but by the sun, I can see everything else. Do you have a faith in your life that has changed how you view everything else in your life? How you view your wife, your husband, your children, your family, your your ministry, your work? Has, Has it changed how you view things, guys? The Bible tells us that when the Holy Spirit awakens our hearts to the reality of Jesus, everything becomes clearer. We can understand Scripture in ways that we couldn't understand Scripture before we became Christians. We can read Scripture. Now with our minds being informed by truth that the Holy Spirit is pouring in, we're free to worship Him freely because our affections have been stirred for the God of the Bible. Listen, this is the work of the light working in you. Then that's why I always point to, to the cross in this room. I, I try to point to the cross every time we meet because let me tell you what the cross does. Jesus exposed you and me on the cross. He exposed us. Like, we can't hide anymore. He exposed our sin and our need for a Savior to cover it. Do you see that? Are you with me on this? I don't want to touch any toes now. Like, let me tell you, we're not fooling anybody either but ourselves when we try to hide our sin or try to put on a religious mask when we come to church or around Christians. We're not fooling anybody but ourselves. Jesus can see right through that. God can see right through that. Jesus sees right through our attempts to hide. So Jesus came and he says, you're broken, you need help, and I have help for you. That's what Jesus came and did. I have help for you. All you have to do is come to me, submit, surrender, and give me your life, and I'm going to shine light in the darkness of your sin and shame and take it from you and nail it to a cross, never to be remembered again. How beautiful is the gospel? It's beautiful. It changes us. So think about that. Think about this. And I wanna do I wanna do a little demonstration here. Think about this. It's, a, it's impossible. It's impossible for darkness to overcome the light. I want to just do something really quick. I, I, I kinda I kinda noticed this as I was doing my I was I take my dog out at nighttime to go use the bathroom. I go outside to turn off the Christmas lights that I put up, way too many of. I, I do I do all these things at nighttime it seems, but there's something that reminded me of darkness. I wanna go ahead and Kill, kill these lights. And so what I love about this is the darkness, as I think about darkness, darkness can never overcome light. Do you hear that? For those of you who are scared of the dark, I apologize. We'll fix it in a momentarily. You've never opened your door at nighttime and had darkness fly into your house, right? If you did, you need to call somebody because that's terrifying, okay? That means you have something else going on that I, we need to work on. But you have opened the door, and light went out, right? Light illuminates the darkness. Darkness never shadows the light. You see that? There's no amount of darkness that could be in this room that could snuff out this light. No amount. You can't add darkness to this. The only way that you can add darkness is by turning off the light in your life, turning off the light in your house, and then darkness comes in. That's where sin comes in. That's why First John talks about anyone who's living in sin probably doesn't know Jesus because they, 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 you can't turn Jesus on and off like a lamp. But what I do know, all right, we're good, guys. Thank you for that. I know that was a very elementary lesson. But what I want you to see is that the light of Christ in your life will expel darkness. That's why 1 John says it's impossible for those who are in Christ to continue to live in sin. So if you're living in sin and you say, hey, I'm a Christian, you've got to ask yourself the question, are you really a Christian and you're just struggling with sin that you need to confess and repent of, or are you not a Christian and you're just faking it? And I'm not trying to condemn. I'm trying to pull you out of the shadows of that shoe this morning and come into the light so that we can celebrate with you, not condemn you. I promise you one thing. If you come to this church long enough, you'll know. We celebrate people going from death to life in Christ. I don't care what you've done, what you've gone through, who you've done it with. Christ has enough grace and mercy to save you. And I want to tell you this morning, he is the light of the world, not just for the people of the Old Testament, the people of the New Testament. He's the light of the world for us right now. But you have to open the door and allow the light to shine in. That's what Jesus does for us. If you don't believe me, let's look back at John chapter 8. Let's look, at the, let's look for some context of what Jesus did right before chapter, verse 12. We see the adulteress who was forgiven. He said, at dawn he went to the temple again and all the people were coming to him. He sat down to begin to teach them. And then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. If you have your pen, a marker, some lipstick, whatever you have with you, circle caught in. Caught him, caught in adultery. She was caught in the act of adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said, This woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So, what do you say? They're trying to trap him. They asked us to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accusing. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning, he stood up and said to them, The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued to write on the ground. Who in here wants to know what he was writing on the ground? I really want to know. I really, it's probably hilarious. It's probably funny. But I really want to know what it was. I, well, that's probably one of the ten questions I'm gonna ask when I get to heaven. After I'm amazed and fall and faint and all this stuff, but I'm gonna ask him like, "Listen, what? what you, would you write on the ground? Why did you put stuff out like in the Bible? It makes it drives me crazy. And I want to know." So, but listen, I do too. We have no idea, but the Bible tells us it doesn't tell us. But it's, but look what happens. Look at verse nine. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. It's interesting. They said starting with the older men. Only, only he was left, Jesus, with the woman in the center. So. Why? Why did they start dropping their stones, starting with the older men, working their way down to the younger men? I'll tell you why. As I get older, I learned that older men have a, more, a larger portfolio of sin than younger men who think they're experts. Some of you young guys in here, y'all are still kind of cocky and arrogant, right? You may not want to admit it yet, but when you get my age, you'll see that. I can't believe that just came out of my mouth because I feel like I am your age, right? You know what I'm saying? So you know, you'll get here. You'll get here. And so when you're, tw- when you're in your 20s, you think you're smarter than you are. Can I get an amen on anybody, right? Anybody, anybody had any experiences like that in their life, right? I'm 20, I know everything, right? You think, but when you're 50, you've learned some lessons the hard way, right? Can we agree? Like, you've learned some lessons, like, hey, bro, you better listen to me, but the 20 year olds, it's like a vicious cycle. 20 year olds won't listen. Well, they can be 50. 50 year olds tell the 20 year olds, you better listen. They're not going to listen. It's like a vicious cycle, right? So I got to figure that out before my son gets 20. But this is why the older men were like, dang it, dropped it. Dang it, he caught us. So here's this woman been caught in the act of adultery. So praise God for the wickedness of the Pharisees or this woman would have been stoned, right? Think about this. They they have clear means by the law to pelt this woman with rocks until she dies. They, They bring her caught in her shame. Listen. Caught in the act of adultery is awkward, okay. If you catch somebody in the act of adultery, that's going to be an awkward interaction. I'm not care what side of the interaction that you're on. It's going to be weird, okay. That's okay. I don't care where you find yourself. But they bring her caught in her shame. She didn't confess. She's busted caught in her sin. They drag her in front of Jesus. And my guess is she's on the ground kind of trying to cover herself up because she was probably naked and she was waiting for the first rot to hit her, probably hoping that maybe it would hit her in the head so that it would knock her out so that she doesn't feel the rest of them coming, just listening to this dialogue of Jesus talking to her accusers saying, if you have a sin in your life, you cast the first stone. And she's sitting there like, dear God, Please. And she's she's thinking, I'm, I'm imagining the, the thoughts going through her mind. And Jesus says, let the one of you who's without sin throw the first stone. And then you hear thud, thud, thud. The rocks fall to the ground. Jesus walks over to this woman, picks up her head. Because anybody caught in shame, anybody caught in sin is shameful. They're not going to look you in the eyes, but Jesus stoops down to where she's at. Jesus comes to where you are in your life, stoops down, looks you in the eye, and says, I love you. I love you. Where are they who condemn you? Who are the ones that condemn you? And she looks around, she sees nobody. Think about the beauty of that moment of grace where she looks around definitely deserved death because of her sin, definitely deserved her punishment that was about to be executed on her, but she looked around when Jesus and all she sees was Jesus' kind eyes looking at her, has no one condemned you, so neither do I. Go and sin no more. Think about this. The one in all the universe that could have condemned her did not condemn her. It reminds me of John chapter 3, verse 17, that says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So this morning, I don't care where you're at, what you've done, Jesus has come into the world to save you. There is coming a day where he's coming into the world to judge you if you don't know Christ. My prayer is that you would know Christ before that day comes, that you'll be found in him. And I want to point something out here that I've said already. This woman, in an overwhelming sense of guilt and shame, does not confess her sins. And this this is going to push against some of our religion here this morning. She didn't come and confess her sins. The scripture is clear. She was caught in the act of adultery. She doesn't commit adultery, go home, feel guilty, call her connective leader and say, Sister, I, I messed up last night. I need some help. Come pray over me in my house. It's not what she does. That's not what happens. She gets busted in the act. Anybody ever got busted in the act of sin? And and Nobody wants to raise your hand for that one. I have. I've I've been busted in my sin. I've been shamed by people. I've been in situations where I thought that I never wanted to go back to church because the church shamed me in my sin. And my heart today is that you would never feel that way in this place. So those who, let me tell you, today, those who don't even come clean on their own volition are extended grace by Jesus. That's, that's incredible and scary to say in a, in a religious setting because some people don't understand what I'm saying. Jesus, she's caught in her sin, and Jesus still offers her grace. She doesn't confess her, she, it doesn't have any recollection of, Jesus says, go and sin no more. Basically, he's saying, repent, turn from your wicked ways. This scene, guys, is an incredible example of God's mercy in Christ. He's the light of the world, he makes the darkness run. And that's what I want you to see this morning. The second thing leads me to my second point. These are shorter, so don't worry. The light forms us. The light forms us. The light illuminates the darkness, but once we come out of the light into Christ, it begins to form us. We call that sanctification in the church. Whenever you're saved in Christ, you're justified. Justified in a court of law means there can never be a charge against you anymore because you've been justified from sin and shame and death. Right? You, you will never be more saved than the moment you are justified. You hear that? I don't care how many times you go to church, read the Bible, go to connect group, you'll never be more saved in that moment. The process of sanctification takes a lifetime. We see it in First Thessalonians. We see it all throughout scripture of the Bible saying that sanctification happens throughout your life. Be it Romans 8, 28 and 29, becoming God's creating in you the image of his son throughout your life. And then in the end, when you die and see Christ, you're glorified to sit with Christ in heaven and rule and reign as Christ co-heirs. And I love the beauty of scripture in that moment. And so the light forms us. And so for some of you nerds in here, there's a few of us I know, there's this little yellow book that was written in 1648. And it's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Catechism for all you people that aren't nerds, Means questionnaire. I'm not sure why I'll just say the Westminster Shorter questionnaire. It'd be a lot easier, right? But this was a tool that the church would use to disciple families back in the day, whenever the Catholic Church was being you kind of the, 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 the Reformation, all these things were happening. So there was in this book, there's 107 questions that you ask with your family with answers that are backed up. By scripture. And so, what you see, the very first question in this book is a question that everyone in the universe that has ever lived has tried to answer. The first question is What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? If you want to dumb that down a little bit, is why are we here? Why do we exist? Why are we in this place? And here's the answer that the catechism gives, and I couldn't agree with it more. It says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so the purpose of your life, the purpose of my life is to glorify God. How do I glorify God? By enjoying him forever. How amazingly simple is that? How amazingly simple is that, guys? Because you know, I know, I know you better than you think I do because I'm human also. We're all chasing after these deeper joys. We're all chasing after these pleasures that only God can feel. I don't care what you're after. The thing that you're trying to feel in your heart, it's only God. God can feel. I have an image I want to show you because this is the blue image about the soul. Um, There's a real mystery to this because you have at the center of who you are, a spirit. And I want to tell you this morning, a lot of you have a very skewed vision of who you are. I try to do this with the guys that I disciple, trying to give them an idea of who they are because a lot of people are living by the flesh. This is who I am. This is, this is Michael. This is how I look. This is who I am. But that's not true. You're a spirit that possesses a soul that lives in a body. First Thessalonians will tell you that again. You're a spirit that God has breathed life into. God's spirit lives inside of you who's given you a soul to see come alive to affect your body to be the hands and feet of Christ. The hands, the heart, the head, no, excuse me, head, heart, hands. It comes into your mind, it filters down into your heart and it comes out of your hands. So we too are trying people. We have three parts to who we are. We're made into the image of Christ. Listen, we too have three parts to who we are. And so, as you look at this, you have a soul, and that soul is eternal. That's why you're created to be an eternal being. You will live forever in heaven or in hell. Those are the two final destinations according to Scripture. So, the soul is eternal, and yet, attached to that soul are these things like your intellect. Your intellect doesn't stand alone, it's attached to your soul. Your physical body isn't on its own. It's attached to your soul, which is why you can wound the body, and it affects the soul, right? Is this all making sense? Some of you psychologists in here are like, this guy's an idiot. Maybe not. Okay, so you have emotions, right? I have emotions. I'm emotional, right? I was crowning the way to church this morning because I love Jesus, and I was listening to worship music, and I was just like, man, it's so good, but your emotions are attached to your soul, God is after the integration of every area of who you are and being submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the beauty. And here's how it works. According to the Bible, the mind informs the heart. And sometimes they fight each other. Anybody have a hard time with the argument between your head and your heart? I want to do this, but I can't. It's like you don't know what you're doing, and you're trying to figure it out. And sometimes they fight each other. So sometimes the heart wrestles with the mind, and the mind wrestles with the heart, and the body is kind of in the limbo, kind of along for the ride. Anybody, are we, are we tracking with me here on this? The mind informs the heart that infuels what we feel that navigates our physical functionality. Do you see how this is working out? This is the beauty of who you are in Christ. So many of us are satisfied with just being flesh, flesh and emotion. That's most of who we think we are, flesh, how I feel and how I look. That's who, that's who I am, right? No, that's not who you are. It's why stress and anxiety manifest themselves in physical ways. Anybody ever had stress manifest itself in a physical way in your life? Probably, I would say most of us. Let me say anxiety, anxiety is a feeling that's built around what we believe to be true, working itself out of our physical body. That's what anxiety is. So, when we're talking about Jesus being the light of the world, we're saying, and this is a very bold statement, we're saying that outside of our relationship with Jesus, we are way outside of what we were designed to be, and therefore not fulfilling what we were created to fulfill. And therefore, in a very real sense, we are unformed. We are formless, like Genesis 1. Formless. God said, Let there be light, but we have not received the light, like John 1 talks about. We are formless. But when we come to Christ, God begins to form us, to integrate us, body, soul, spirit, to one creation. The language that Christians use, like I said before, is sanctification. We are being formed. We are being sanctified. Most Christians would say that they probably hate the pace of this formation process. Would you agree? Who loves the pace of their own for sanctification? Anybody love it? Not many of us. Lord, let's speed this thing up, bro. Like, let's get this thing going. I want to be more sanctified, right? I want to get on the ball here, Lord. No, go by God's pace. He will lead you right, I promise. But let me encourage you on this. When we're talking about spiritual birth, it's helpful for you and me to begin to think about physical birth, right? You didn't come out of the womb doing push-ups, okay? You didn't come out of the womb doing sips. Some of you may have. I don't know. Some of you crazy athletic people. I didn't come out of the womb doing push-ups, right? I still can't do push-ups, okay? But listen. You came out of the womb 99% cartilage, and you had a hole in the top of your head that if you pressed on it, it would mean lights out. That's the way you came out of the womb, right? But you were mainly cartilage, and then over a period of time, you were able to feed yourself. Thank God that when that day comes when you have a baby, if you don't have a baby, you'll know one day. You begin to be able to crawl. You begin to be able to walk you begin able to run, do push-ups, to do things that you couldn't do when you were a baby. Guys, if you're a Christian, in your highs and in your lows, you are being formed. So we can despise how long it takes, but just be glad in knowing that you are being formed. Because that means you are, you are in the light and Christ is working in you. This morning, if you can't sense that in your life, maybe a question to ask before the service is over. Am I in the light? Do I know Christ? And if you don't this morning, I pray to God that you'd be bold enough to make that stand and say yes to Jesus today. The third and last thing, the third and last thing, the light fills the void left by darkness. Who's ever done something in their life that has left a hole in your life? Who's ever sinned in your your life that has caused pain, scars, emotional stress, hurt to others? I've done my fair share of that and probably enough for everybody in this room. John 10.10 says, a thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come, Jesus has come, they may have life and have it to what? Abundance. It's abundance. Abundance is more than you need, right? If you have abundant food, you have more food than you need. If you have abundant anything, it's more than you need. God wants to give you life more than you need. He wants to give you an extremely joyful life. I'm not saying happy. Joyful, because joyful is not based on circumstances like happiness is. Listen, what Jesus is after for you and for me is an abundant life. And I think we can all agree that you don't have to be a Christian to enjoy the common graces of God. Can we agree with that? You don't have to be a Christian to understand that there are common graces. And some of you are like, what's common grace? Let me tell you. You don't have to be a Christian to enjoy a really good meal, right? You you don't have to. You you can be a God-hating pagan and love a steak and a glass of wine, right? Or chicken nuggets, I'm not sure where you land on that, some of you other people. You don't have to be a Christian to love vacation. You don't have to be a Christian to love intimacy with your spouse. Right? But let me tell you this, none of those things require you to be a Christian. But here's what I want to argue, that in order to experience the fullness of any of those things, you must know Christ. I was preaching at a youth conference probably seven years ago, six years ago, I don't know. It's been a long time. So then we'll probably know the exact date. It's been a long time. But I was preaching about Luke 14, about you to to follow Christ, to be my disciple. You must hate your father, mother, brother, sister. You can't, if you love anything more than me, you can't follow me. And I was saying that, and I was in the middle of a sermon, 200 kids in a room. I'm sitting here. All of a sudden, I see this hand raised. I'm like, oh, my God, what have I done? This kid raises his hand, so what do I do? I, I call on him in the middle of a sermon. Don't ever do this. This is the most awkward moment of my life so far. He says, so you're telling me I can't love my mom and dad and follow Christ. And so I, I, I had to go into that spiel, and there was an uproar. It was crazy. The devil was trying to his hardest to, to do something in that room, but it got worked out, and it's, it was fine. But what I want you to see is Jesus is not saying you, 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 love, you have to love Jesus or, or, and nobody else. He's saying you need to love Jesus more than anything, more than anybody else. Because what he's saying is, you don't know the love for a spouse, a friend, a family member until you know the love of Christ. You don't know the full extent of that love for your wife until you know the love of Christ, until you have the light of Christ in your life. And so for the Christian, rooted in the Word of God and formed in his mind and shaping his life, a great steak, I'm not, sorry for you vegetarians or vegans, my bad, uh, tofu, okay, um, great steak or tofu, you know, um, or vacation or just life. It, it, it leads to worship of something greater. You know what I mean? My wife would tell you, if you give me a great ribeye flight, I, I'm worshiping in that moment. It's like, God, thank you for this steak right here. God, this is great. I love it. I'm, well, it's beautiful. And that, that's not even, but that's, that is not even on the table for an unbeliever. If you think about this for a second, if you don't think God is about us enjoying who he is, like the catechism said we should, why give things different flavors? Why do that? Why, why why give things different colors? Why why make the sky beautiful at night? Why why make why make my wife beautiful? Why do all these things? Because he wants to be glorified in our enjoyment of his creative brilliance. He wants us to be, he wants us, he wants to be glorified through me enjoying him. And that's the beauty of the light of Christ in me. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse eleven, it says, "God has put eternity in the heart of man. God has put eternity in the heart of man." If the band wants to come back, we're about to we're do one more psalm before we leave. As we get ready to do that, I want to say, "God has put eternity in the heart of every man." So therefore, only what is eternal can fill the gap of eternity. And so, as you look at this, nothing that you accomplish. Nothing that you own in this place this morning, no, no relationship that you long to have will ever fill the gap of eternity that you have in your heart. Nothing can. Nothing can. When Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, he's saying, I'll fill that void in your life. That's what he's saying. Then finally, you see here that we have a new purpose. Some of the, some of the guys that I meet with for discipleship, one of the things I'm realizing is a lot of us don't realize our identity in Christ. No longer am I a pastor who is a Christian. I'm a Christian who's a pastor. No longer am I a, a factory worker who's a Christian. I'm a Christian who's a factory. My faith, my identity in Christ should affect everything around me. But, but listen, I, I believe this with all my heart, that life in Christ means the death of boredom. There's a lot of bored Christians around. I think That's unbiblical. Listen, life in Christ means the death of boredom because if the chief end of man is to bring glory to God by enjoying him forever, that means ultimate purpose in my neighborhood. I have ultimate purpose in my workplace. I have ultimate purpose in my marriage, and I have ultimate purpose in raising my children, and that's not boring. That's a lot of work and a lot of fun because I get to glorify God in the process. What that means, it means I'm reflecting the light of Christ anywhere and everywhere I can by enjoying Him. And I enjoy Him by aligning myself with His commands that are meant to lead me into the fullest life possible. Are you tracking with me on this? That's what I wanted you to see. Jesus is the light of the world. There's no other light that will shine into the darkness of your life. And here's my goal as we close. My goal today and every day is this. I... I never want you to feel judged in any way. I never want you to feel judged leaving here. I only want to lay before you that Jesus is the light of the world in hopes that if you don't know Christ today, that God will reveal himself to you, that by the grace of God you might become and begin to make sense of that feeling of being unformed that we talked about so that you might trust in the name of Jesus and be saved. That if you feel stuck in darkness and have tried to get out, only to continually trip over things or not quite be able to make it into the light that you would come to Christ and you would trust in his name. I'm hopeful that the Holy Spirit of God might awaken in us, awaken in your heart, that you would believe that Jesus is the light of the world in your own life. My heart today is that if you're not a Christian, if you know that you've been sitting here for a minute and you've been listening to this sermon and you realize there's some, I've, I've never been, I've never experienced the light of Christ in my life. I've experienced religion. I've gone to church, gone through the motions. I I can quote scripture. But Christ has never made me new. I've never been new, a new creation in Christ. If that's you today and you know that Jesus has brought new, wants to bring new life to you and he's, he's calling you to something greater, I pray today would be a day of salvation. Today is a day where you know that, that you have not been walking with Christ in the light. You may have just been faking it, saying, hey, this is what this person is doing and they're a Christian, so I'm going to try to mimic them so I look like a Christian, so I'll be accepted in this circle of people. If that's you, that means you're probably not saved. In my heart today is that you would come into the light and be saved for you, you and Jesus. Just like the adulterous woman called me, the act of her adultery, you would come into the light today and let Jesus look at you in the face and say, where are your accusers? Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Repent. Be baptized. So this morning, if you know, hey, Michael, today, that's, that's, that's me. I've I've never been saved. I've I've gone to I've 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 played the game and I've and I've and I've put on the mask, but I've never truly walked into a saving relationship with Jesus where I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if, if Christ were to come today, I'll be counted among His. If you can't say that today, I pray that you would be bold enough to to, to let us pray with you. you. You see some people on the sides over here. We would love to to walk through that decision with you. We would love to celebrate that with you. So that's you today. I want to ask you to do something bold. And just lift up your hand and say, hey, today that's me. That's me today, Michael. I want, to, I want to make that decision today. And I want to come out of the darkness into light. Is there anyone in this room today? Amen, brother. Amen. Amen. Can somebody pray with me? Can Eric pray with you? Patrick, can you? Patrick, can you pray with him? Is there anybody else? Amen. Guys, give, give him a hand. That's awesome. verse 14 to 16 says, you are the light of the world. You're a Christian in this room this morning. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And then he puts that title on you. He says, because you're in me, you are the light of the world too. You're the light of the world. What does it say? A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and tries to cover it up under a basket, but rather puts it on a lampstand and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And I want to tell you a story, it's a true story, about uh, I, was a, I was a youth pastor for a number of years in Warner Robbins, and there was these girls, There were sisters. Um, the older sister was newly saved, and she was, had a burden on her heart to know Jesus and to make him known. And she would come into my office, I was a young youth pastor, I was oblivious to everything, I, I was in my 20s, I knew everything, right? And so I had this moment where she came into my office one night, she had been saved for a few months she came in, she said, Michael, I just want more people to know about Jesus. I want more people to see what I have. I mean, she was fired uh, she said, "I'll do anything for I'll do anything for people to know Christ." And so she said, "I'm going to start a text chain." So she started this thing. She called it Bible Time. She was fourteen. Uh, she was sixteen. Her sister was fourteen. She was sixteen years old. She said, "I'm going I'm to start this prayer chain. It's going to be called Bible Time." I'm going to send out messages to all my friends about what I'm reading about in Scripture, and I'm going to share with them what Jesus is telling me through the Scriptures. And so she would send this out. And that two or three weeks later, she had fifty people that were sending it to. She had a, a, a Facebook. A group that she was sending these encouraging notes to, and she would do all that. and she came to my office about a month later. She said, Michael, I really want people to know about Jesus. He's changed my life. He's he loves me and he loves my sister, my family. He loves He loves. I just I just want everybody to know about him. And so she was it was a Wednesday night. We were sitting in my office, it was raining. She gets in her car, goes home, has a car accident on the way home. And both her sister and her died. And I preached her funeral a few weeks later. And what I want to tell you today, I looked before I came to service today. Her, um, her Facebook page today has over 5,000 people who go to that Facebook page to look for a scripture and a prayer to follow Christ and, and has a salvation message on there, a gospel message. She's reaching more people in her death than she ever would have in her life. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. This morning, it's your desire for people to know Christ, to enjoy Christ and to be glorified through your life. Her name was Bridget and her sister's name was Leslie, tell that testimony because I love hearing about what God's doing through her life of just having a desire to know and, and trust God. This morning if you're in this room and you know Jesus as the light of the world but you have never lived that way or you've kind of like put a put a bushel on top as the old Baptist little kid song would say my heart will be today that you would come to this altar and you would take that thing off and let your light shine before all men that he would see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. If that's you today, I pray that you would be in this altar and you would just praise God for what he's doing in this house, what he's doing in your life, and we would do this together. Do we do that? Let me pray for us as we go. God, we love you. We praise you for the decision of of our brother who who went from death to life this morning. I thank you for the testimony of his wife, God, who's been praying um, for his connegrim, who has been praying for him. Father, I thank you, God, that that never gets old. We thank you, we praise you, God, for allowing uh, your your spirit to flood into his heart, for making the gospel come alive in his heart. God, I pray um, for this church, God, we would never cease to celebrate the decision to follow you, Jesus. I pray that we would be be a city on a hill. I pray that we would let our light shine before all men, that you would receive the glory and honor and praise. God, you're the only one in this universe that deserves that. We praise you and we thank you for allowing us to be a part of it this morning. We love you in Jesus' name.